You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Morning. It's a joy to see you all as we gather to worship the Lord. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you are visiting here with us this morning, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, we are Redemption Church. We, we love God's word. We believe that, that Christ is the only one who can save sinners like us. And we love to turn to God's word to find help and comfort and instruction as we worship the Lord together uh, on Sunday's morning. So let me invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 13, and then we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 10 and verse 20. So Ecclesiastes 9, verse 13, through chapter 10 through end verse 20. So let me uh, read God's word for us, and then we'll begin. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest." There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, 
and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your boredom, uh, bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your mercy and by your grace, that you would make us wise. Lord, that you would help us to recognize our own tendency towards folly, and that you would make us wise for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ this day, as your word is preached. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last Sunday was October 31st. And, uh, and so some people call that the day of Halloween. Others of you call it Reformation Day, right? And so it's a day in which we do kind of commemorate and remember Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg, thereby sparking the Protestant Reformation. But most people don't realize that Luther was in many ways preceded by a contemporary Catholic thinker named Erasmus. Erasmus, who was a critic of the church, he's well known for publishing the uh, kind of definitive Greek New Testament that helped spark the Protestant Reformation, and he indeed helped spread the motto of the Renaissance, ad fontes, or back to the sources. And so Erasmus, in many ways, kind of helped set some of the stage for the coming Reformation, and Erasmus was a brilliant man. In fact, he was quite skilled with his pen, and you know, many people have very a variety of different hobbies that they like to do for fun. Erasmus liked to amuse himself with words in his free time, and he penned a satirical work called The Praise of Folly. The Praise of Folly. In this book, Folly is personified as a person, as a lady, and she makes extended speeches about her pervasive influence on the world, how influential, how great folly is. And so she arrives on the scene and she sort of summons attention. She says, prick up your ears and I'll tell you how many benefits I bestow on both men and gods, how widely my sacred powers extend, meaning foolishness is everywhere, everywhere. And so the whole work is tongue-in-cheek, and Erasmus uses the, the personification of folly in order to be able to safely critique priests and bishops and politicians and kings and rulers uh, without losing his head. And so folly makes a comment in that, that work that sounds eerily modern, something like we would hear today. She says, the chief element of happiness is this, to want to be what you are, to want to be what you are. Folly's teaching, in many ways, has become the wisdom of our own age. We live in a world that teaches us that in order to be happy, you've got to be the true you. You've got to be you. Authenticity means being true to yourself, accepting yourself, perceiving yourself as you perceive yourself to be. Happiness comes from self-expression, self-love, self-acceptance. And so the words that Erasmus places in the mouth of folly are actually echoed by the very sages of our modern age. The Bible gives us a very countercultural message. The fool stays as he is, but the wise man, the wise woman, recognizes his need for change, that he doesn't need to be true to himself. 
He needs to be reformed. He needs to be changed. He needs to repent. You see, the wise man fears the Lord. The wise man recognizes his sin. The wise man realizes that he needs to humble himself before God and live not just one day in repentance, but every day, every moment of repentance. Indeed, even labeling attitudes and behaviors today as either wise or foolish teeters on the line of heresy in our secular age. Who are you to say what is wise? Who are you to say what is foolish? After all, such sort of definitive judgments about what is wise and what is foolish, that's an anathema thing to do, right? You will be condemned. The only sin in our culture is to make any sort of judgment whatsoever, even what is wise and what is foolish. So God does not call us to stay as we are. He doesn't. But his word so graciously, so painfully, often convicts us and exposes the foolishness of our sin. By grace, God, through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can make us wise unto salvation in Christ. So in our passage today, starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13, going through the end of chapter 10, we see repeating portraits, pictures of this contrast between wisdom and folly. And as the preacher gives us the, there's a lot of just really practical counsel this morning from the text, he's going to help us learn how to avoid the sort of foolishness that we can so easily find ourselves entangled by as we live life under the sun. Because we've got to confess, and this is my assumption as we expound this text today, that you are a fool in need of wisdom. <laughs> in other words, we all have areas where we need to grow in more godly wisdom and that you need to change, you need to repent, you need to grow by God's grace. Indeed, I, I, I believe scripture attests to this, right? That recognizing your lack of wisdom is the first step to attaining wisdom. And so I pray that you recognize that this morning, that, that even though our world might scorn the sort of wisdom we find in this text, the sort of wisdom that comes from God's word, I pray that we will find as we worship the Lord this day that godly wisdom is a sweet fragrance to the Lord while foolishness is a stench, it's an odor, it's vile. So let's first consider the hidden value of quiet wisdom. The hidden value of quiet wisdom. We see this in chapter 9, verse 13 through 18. Wisdom, if your life is defined by it, often has a sort of hidden quality to it. The, the wise tend not to be very flashy, but they live rather unnoticed lives, particularly compared to the, the crackling sound of the fools. But the wise, even though they're quiet, even though they're hidden, even though they're unobtrusive in so many ways, yet they display great strength and influence, even though the world doesn't seem to recognize them for it. At the end of chapter 9, the preacher shares this example of this sort of hidden wisdom that we're talking about. And it's an example of some sort of military strategy and victory that greatly impressed the preacher. And so apparently the circumstances, as the preacher describes it, is there's this small city, only had a few people in it, and some great and powerful king comes and lays siege against the city to overtake it. But there was a poor but wise man in that little city that ended up delivering it and saving it from this king bringing siege against it. Now, the preacher doesn't elaborate on the details of what that man did to achieve victory. 
There's a blockbuster movie in there somewhere, right? How that happened. But as curious as we might be about how that poor wise man pulled that off, the preacher doesn't care to share those details with us because indeed those details aren't the point. In fact, the the hiddenness of those details is the exact point he's making. He shares the story in order to show us that this man, even though he did a great thing, even though he had incredible wisdom, he was unnoticed and forgotten. Unnoticed and forgotten. Because the man was poor and humble, dwelt in a small city, the preacher implies that his wisdom was overlooked. Nobody was hiring him to come be on their their, their board of directors for defense of the nation, right? That's not happening. He's just ignored. But indeed, he's not just ignored. The preacher says he's actually despised for his wisdom. History forgot the man. The the remembrance of his cunning action here in the moment of crisis, which seems to be rooted in a historical event the preacher's recalling, nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows what he did. The text says, look at verse 15, no one remembered that poor man. No one remembered him. A few people around there, what sort of life do you want to have? What sort of life do you want to have? They probably won't use the words unnoticed and forgotten. (laughs) that's the kind of life I want. I want to be unnoticed and I want to be forgotten. That's my dream. That's who I want to be. No, our culture actually urges us to do the complete opposite of that, doesn't it? That we are called, our culture demands that we make a name for ourselves, that we're praised, that, that we're ambitious, that we accomplish something, that we're remembered. This is what our culture values. This is what we are taught to do with our lives. And I've noticed this emphasis so repeatedly in American culture, and it often manifests itself in our media, in our art, in our films, in our music. So repeated. Let me give you just two examples of ways I've seen this. Call to ambition. In the hit musical, Hamilton, and I see the fear in your face, I will not be rapping, so don't get encouraged or excited. But in that musical Hamilton, the founding father, Alexander Hamilton, is portrayed as a scrappy, ambitious immigrant eager to make a name for himself. And so in the opening song, the choir sings, when, and I'm not going to rap it, right? But when America sings for you, they will know you, that, will they know that you overcame? Will they know that you rewrote your game? The world will never be the same. You see, the whole musical in so many ways is about Hamilton's desire to make an impact, to be ambitious, to leave a legacy, to be remembered. But of course, the tragedy of Hamilton's life, as the musicals see it, is that his enemies destroyed his rep, America forgot him. That's the tragedy as the musical sees it. He was unnoticed and forgotten. Or consider another movie, this one you kids might have seen, a Pixar movie called Coco, based on the Mexican Day of the Dead. And the great conflict of that particular film is over the present generation forgetting the past generation. And in that movie, when the living people forget you, you cease to live in the afterlife. But, but consider how those, those two pop culture artifacts speak about what our society most fears, what we're most troubled by. Hamilton demonstrates this fear of being unknown. Coco reflects this fear of being forgotten. Yet the preacher says that the life of the wise tends to be both unknown and forgotten. Godly wisdom often leads us to live the sort of life that our culture is most despising of. See how the preacher gives this poor wise man here 
The preacher doesn't give him a name. He doesn't tell us the specifics of what this man did in this small city to deliver. Indeed, the preacher, rather intentionally, cloaks his wisdom with the, the shroud of being anonymous, right? The, the preacher here could have recorded what this guy did, and we would be reading about it today. But the preacher's point is that wisdom is unnoticed and forgotten. If you live this sort of life, this, you will be lost often, frequently, to the annals of human history. But yet the preacher says, and this is the point he's emphasizing, wisdom is better than might. Having this sort of wisdom is better than might. Even though the poor man's wisdom is, is despised and his words are not heard, it's still better to live in this sort of wisdom. If we hope to live wisely, we have to learn to be content. Indeed, not just content, but we should embrace a quiet and hidden life for the glory of God. Look at verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. When you scream, you get attention. Here's a helpful hint for you, those of you aspiring to be social media influencers, right? If you scream, you get attention. And in our technological age, we live in a world where everyone seems to be shouting for attention. Indeed, part of the problem of our digital communications is that the loudest voice dominates the room. What gets the most clicks? Outrage sensationalism, scandal, and indeed, sadly, Christians employ the same tactics, attacking one another online, sounding constant alarms of crisis and conspiracies that don't even exist, providing uncharitable critiques of other believers, witty Twitter cutdowns. Those are all standard fare for online Christian communication. And how sad is that? Even in the church, the shouting fool tends to get the attention. But the preacher says that wisdom, as we try to grow and live a godly life in Christ Jesus, if we want to be wise, we need to embrace the quiet, not the shouting. The local, not the national. The in-person community of our own town, not this anonymous digital tribe that we make ourselves a part of. So how can you, how can I, how can we, how can we live this life of hidden wisdom described here? Well, I, I do think it, it, it demands avoiding the shouting of the fools. It demands avoiding the cacophony of online voices all demanding our ears and demanding our attention. Instead, we should turn our attention to our communities, our family, our church, our city. This poor man described here in this small city, that's exactly who he is. And aren't we that man in so many ways? As wonderful as a city that Wilson is, Wilson isn't a center of commerce like New York City. It's not a center of entertainment like LA. It's not a city of politics like Washington, D.C. Indeed, we are a small, relatively unknown town in the world. But yet, even still, with quiet and godly wisdom, hidden wisdom, may we love our city. May we live in quiet godliness. May we share the gospel of Christ faithfully where we are. Wisdom demands that we embrace the quiet and hidden life of godliness. As Count Zinzendorf, the Moravian, said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. There's your vision statement for your life. George Eliot, in her novel Middlemarch, wrote this. She said, the growing good of the world 
is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Director Terrence Malick made a movie inspired by that quote called A Hidden Life. The film describes a true story of a relatively unknown and obscure German farmer named Franz who refused to be drafted into the Nazi army due to his Christian convictions. And as a result, Franz is rejected by his community, he's thrown in prison, and eventually he is, loses his life because he takes a principled stand. How many corpses have been thrown in unmarked graves because they chose to obey God rather than man? How many have chosen gladly to be forgotten if it means that they might be faithful to God in their own generation? Consider the martyrs of the church all throughout church history over the last 2,000 years. We have some of their stories. We have some of their names, but most of them we do not. We don't even know who they are. How many unknown but yet faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum? What were the names of those who lit up Emperor Nero's garden at night? We don't know. Wisdom often demands that we live in obscurity. And so church, may we reject this American obsession with notoriety and fame and influence. And instead, in our quiet and godly lives in Christ Jesus, may we live in wisdom and may we live faithfully for God's glory. And even though the wise may not join in the shout of fools, even though they are poor, even though they are unnoticed, even though our world forgets such wisdom, here's the good news. The Lord doesn't forget. The Lord remembers. He knows his people. Remember the words of Paul, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. As Isaiah 49 verse 16 tells us, and as we so frequently sing here, my name is graven on his hands. That if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, you've trusted and rely upon him for your salvation, take heart. Though the world forgets you, the Lord Jesus will not. You may be unnoticed by this world, but the Lord of heaven notices you and is pleased by you. Though you are poor in the eyes of the world, you will receive the inheritance of Christ. And though you die, perhaps in a forgotten, unmarked grave, in Christ you are remembered, and you will be resurrected on that great day of the Lord. What good news. So wisdom is better than weapons of war, as the preacher describes it. But the preacher does warn here, verse 18, that one sinner destroys much good. So now that we've considered the hidden value of this sort of quiet wisdom, let us consider now the visible stench of clamoring folly. The, the, the visible stench of clamoring folly. Let's consider the fool in verse 1 through 15 of chapter 10. So in contrast with this sort of hidden wisdom, chapter 10 opens up with a series of Proverbs that demonstrate how a little bit of foolishness, a little bit of folly, can outweigh wisdom. So look at the image in verse 1. A dead fly 
and a perfume gives off a stench, so too does a little bit of folly outweigh wisdom and honor. Now, you might strive for wisdom, but just a little bit of foolishness can make a mess out of your life, can it? It can outweigh all the wisdom and honor that you've tried to cultivate. Wisdom and folly take us in two opposite directions, opposite trajectories for our lives. The wise man's heart, he says, is inclined to the right, the fool to the left. Now, the preacher's not commenting on American politics, so don't get encouraged, those of you who vote Republican, right? That's not what we're talking about here. Even though many Christians and sadly many pastors use such texts to make such accusations, that's out of context. It's an erroneous point and application to make. What, what is the preacher emphasizing here? Right? The preacher emphasizes that a wise heart and a foolish heart diverge in two opposite directions. It's, it's a bit like a fork in the road. Perhaps to, to put it another way, wisdom and folly are like two directions on an interstate. Right? You either choose to get on I-95, and you either go north or you go south. And based on which one you pick, you will go to different and opposite destinations. So does your heart incline you to wisdom, or does your heart incline you to folly? Well, as sinners, we answer that, lost in our trespasses and sin, because we are corrupted by our depraved nature, our hearts are corrupted. We are bent towards evil. We have a natural inclination to foolishness, not wisdom. It takes a supernatural act of God's grace to redirect our hearts to, to cause us to lean towards wisdom. We're, we're sort of like a car that is out of alignment. Our hearts keep just repeatedly drifting in the ditch every time we let loose the wheel. While wisdom is often hidden from view, the preacher says that folly makes itself known. Look at verse 3 of chapter 10. It says, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. You see, a fool announces himself by his actions. You see, you might not be able to notice the wise. They're hidden. They're quiet. They're, they're unobtrusive. Nobody notices them. But everyone notices a fool. Everyone notices, right? A fool makes his presence known, and he often makes the consequences of his actions even worse. Look at verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So picture here for a moment, right, the moody teenager huffing and puffing, walking out of the room in complete disrespect to an angry parent. They don't respond to the situation with calmness and humility, but rather foolishness, thereby making matters worse in the presence of their parental authority by showing such dishonor and disrespect. A fool does that sort of thing, right? Because of foolishness, our social hierarchies, the preacher says, are much more fragile than they appear. Imagine, he says, if a ruler became a fool became a ruler. Look at verse 6. So that folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. You see, the crookedness of human sin, particularly foolishness, has a way of reversing the way of things. A foolish ruler walks on the ground like a slave while a slave is riding on a horse. Social standing, the preacher emphasizes here, is a very precarious thing. Shifting and often moving. And when a fool sits in a high place in society, folly ripples down throughout all of society. So the preacher is emphasizing that in these Proverbs, folly bears evidence. 
You can see, you can notice the fool repeatedly. So, so look at your life, right? You reap what you sow. And when you sow folly, you will reap a whirlwind of foolishness. Let's keep looking at the text. Look at verse 8 and 9. And we see here emphasizes upon the consequences of such foolishness. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who queries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Humorously, the the preacher puts before us some sort of accident-prone person, the the klutz who seems to cause themselves self-harm. So if you're digging a pit, pay careful attention to the consequences of your action. Don't fall into it because you're oblivious, because you're not paying attention. If you're remodeling your home, be on guard and prepared for risks, such as a serpent being on the other side coming to attack you. Right? In other words, wisdom demands, the preacher says, that we pay attention and then we calculate risks. And he says a foolish person doesn't do either of those things. They act impulsively, rashly. In addition, we see that the wise not only pay attention, but they also do prepare and calculate for their success. Look at verse 10 through 11. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. And then he goes on. He says, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Common sense is not all that common, right? It's not. We reminded of that all the time, and, and the preacher's reminding us of such things. A wise man will sharpen his axe before he goes to cut. A fool exhausts himself, wears himself out with a dull axe. And then the snake comes back on the scene as an image in verse 11, I think intended to be humorous, right? That if a snake bites you before you've charmed the snake, then the charmer is not advantaged by the training of that snake. In fact, the humor comes so that not only will the harmer not have any advantage, but then he will die of the snake's venom, right? Definitely no advantage. If anything, a disadvantage. So verse 8 through 11 frames this sort of common sense wisdom here that highlights the reality of our actions have consequences. What we sow, we will reap. A fool overlooks these sort of realities that we're talking about. They neglect responsibilities. And a fool is caught off guard by his lack of perception in verse 8 through 9. He's caught off guard by his lack of preparation, verse 10. And he's caught off guard, verse 11, by his lack of planning. So examine your life for a moment and look carefully at your life. Take a hard look at it. Is your life disordered by foolishness? Is it marked by the sort of folly that's described here in these verses? That if you find yourself meandering through life, constantly surprised by things that you ought to have planned for, continually falling into a pit that you've dug for yourself, examine yourself. It may indicate that you have a heart that's much more foolish than you think that needs to be renewed by godly wisdom in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Guard against foolishness in your life, knowing that a single act of foolishness, a single act, a single moment of weakness is like a fly in the ointment. Folly is a stench that will make your life smell foul. A foolish life gives off this sort of grotesque smell, like a skunk, causes people to gag when they come around you. They don't want to be around you. Indeed, if you are a Christian, may our lives never be marked by such stench. 
such folly. If anything, the, the scriptures say that our lives should be a, a fragrant offering unto the Lord, to the praise of his glory as an act of worship. That's the life of the wise. That's the life of those who are in Christ Jesus. A life marked by folly makes the gospel that you profess seem like a stench to the world. May it never be so of our lives. Remember that if you confess Christ as your Savior, if you believe upon Jesus, then you are a witness for Christ. You are a representative for Christ. Paul says you are an ambassador for the kingdom. And if you live with the stench of a fool, what sort of witness for Christ will you be in the world? You see, the reality of our witness comes through by our actions, but also as we consider our speech. You can make some bad decisions, and folly can be evident by those decisions, but folly is most apparent by the words that you speak. A fool can cover his bruises from falling into his own ditch and conceal them pretty well, but a fool can't muzzle his mouth. Fundamentally, our mouths expose who we really are. It exposes whether we are wise or foolish. As Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So look at verses 12 through 15 of our text. Here we see the preacher's warning about foolishness, particularly when it comes to speech. Look at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Based on these verses, let me give you four quick observations about the fool in his tongue. First, a fool is eaten by his words. He's eaten by his words. Verse 12, he turns his words upon him. He brings himself to ruin based off of the things that he says. A wise man is the opposite, right? He earns favor trust, credibility, honor from others by his words, but a fool does just the opposite. He turns his words on his own head and they devour him. A fool is eaten by his words. Second, a fool progresses into increasingly foolish speech. Increasingly foolish speech. Verse 13, indeed, the more a fool talks, the worse it becomes, right? He keeps digging his own grave, so to speak. He starts speaking, and it's already starting off being utter foolishness, and by the end of the conversation, he's so cycloned down into greater depravity and evil madness. It starts folly, and it gets worse as it goes on. The more a fool talks, the worse his speech becomes. Thirdly, a fool doesn't stop talking. A fool doesn't stop talking. Look at verse 14. His words multiply in abundance. He just keeps chatting and chatting and chatting about increasing foolishness. And the preacher humorously says, who can tell him what will be after him? In other words, who knows what a fool is going to say next? Not me. It's, it's a madman raving, a string of rambling, stream of unconscious thoughts that just come out of your mouth. A fool thinks out loud. A wise man carefully considers his words. Proverbs 10, verse 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Fourth, 
A fool doesn't know where he's going. <laughs> a fool doesn't know where he's going. Verse 15. The toil of his words and of his speech are so numerous that they exhaust him. They fatigue him. And the more he starts talking about something, the more confused he seems to come about it. Some people enjoy talking things out. But a fool, the more they talk about them, the more confused they seem to be. Clarity seems to, to, to keep retracting back further and further. He meanders with his words. He never arrives at any destination. Indeed, he doesn't know how to get there. He starts talking, and he has no idea of where he's trying to go with his conversation. So, consider your speech. Consider your speech. Do you talk like this? Is your conversation, is your speech, like the preacher describes here, is your tongue filled with foolishness? Does your tongue, more than your actions, expose a foolish heart? Church, may we give attention to our words. Watch your speech. May we speak in wisdom. Speak in a way that demonstrates the, the wisdom and power of God. As Colossians says, may your, may your speech always be seasoned with salt. May your words give grace to those who hear. Be wary of that little muscle in your mouth that is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Remember the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, right? Thinking back, chapter 2, chapter 5, verse 2 through 3. A fool's voice is filled with many words, he says. Therefore, let your words be few. Let your words be few. So in contrast to the, the hidden beauty of invisible wisdom, folly exudes this sort of foul odor both in actions and in words. You don't have to see it. You can smell foolishness from a mile away. You just come into the presence of a fool, you just start getting the odor, right? You just start smelling it. However, the preacher emphasizes this contrast, right, between wisdom and folly, wisdom and folly. And he wants to show us this contrast, and we know that foolishness is propelled by our own wickedness, by our own sinful hearts. And so as the preacher is expounding upon this contrast between wisdom and folly, he wants to give us an, an example of it. He wants to give us an illustration, if you will, and he brings the contrast between wisdom and folly in the realms of leadership, particularly political leadership, in chapter uh, verse 16 through verse 20. And that leads thirdly to wisdom and folly in leadership. Wisdom, wisdom and folly in leadership. Folly can make a mess out of your life. But when you have authority, power, position, foolishness can make your life a curse to those who are underneath your authority. We've discussed the goodness of authority in God's created design already in this book. Whether in the realm of government, work, church, or home, God has orchestrated all of our lives to flourish under the exercise <coughs> of wise authority. God has designed your life to operate in that way. He's designed my life to operate that way. Of course, our fallenness often perverts God's good design and his purposes for authority. While God intends authority to be a blessing for those who are underneath it, a foolish authority wrecks absolute havoc upon everyone else's lives. The preacher laments the tyranny of a foolish king. Look at what he says, starting in verse 16. Woe to you, O land, 
when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Notice the contrast here that the preacher sets up between a wise king and a foolish king. It says a foolish king starts his day with a drunken fringe. His motto is it's 5 o'clock somewhere, even if it's 5 a.m., right? I'm getting started. And so a wise king, he says, feasts at the proper time. And he eats for strength, not for drunkenness. The, the actions of the king, either wise or, or foolish, the preacher is highlighting here, directly impacts the land, the people that he rules. An unwise king brings woe to those who are under his authority, while a wise king brings blessing to those who are under his authority. Verse 18 through 20 of our text are more independent proverbs, but placed here within the context of kingship, they further flesh out this contrast between a wise ruler and a foolish ruler. A foolish ruler will be slothful, letting his kingdom wane and sink. He doesn't keep up the maintenance of the kingdom. He doesn't, and then he panics when it's too late, and then it's, the roof falls in, right? That's, that's a, a foolish leader. On the other hand, a king has resources at his disposal, and he uses those resources as a gift, and he uses them for the blessing of those under his care. Bread and wine, they're wonderful commodities used wisely, but money is even better because it's a liquid asset, meaning that it can be able to be used for whatever needs to be done. Thus, the preacher says, money answers everything. So a wealthy king has financial resources to bring blessing to the land, but a foolish and selfish king will misuse his power to the detriment of those who are under his authority. Now, for those of you who have authority in this life, let me ask you an important question. Are you wielding it in wisdom or in foolishness? Are you a wise leader or are you a foolish one? Those of you who are bosses and managers and school teachers, do those under your care flourish because of your sacrificial leadership? To those of you who are elders, pastors in Christ's church, is the church's spiritual health better because of your wise exercise of your God-given authority. Husbands who lead your wife and children, does your leadership in your home, does it bless those in your home or does it harm those in your home? Do you exercise your leadership in order to be self-indulgent, consuming with drink and food at the expense of your family? Or do you sacrifice, serve, and love in wisdom in a way that brings glory and honor to Christ? You see, part of the crookedness of this world is struggling how to live under such foolish authority because sadly, it is all too common. So the preacher gives a warning, especially to a foolish king, to, to, particularly when you're under a foolish king, Right To not curse the king even in your thoughts, for a bird will carry your thoughts and words to his attention, bringing you into judgment of a foolish king. The pervasive big brother, so to speak, from Orwell's 1984. Always listening, always reporting, always watching. Words of gossip have a way of finding their way to the ears of those who are in authority over you. That's the lesson the preacher is reminding us of. Even though Ecclesiastes leaves us in this sort of stark reality of a world marked by wisdom and foolishness, we've talked repeatedly throughout this book that we long for this crooked world in which we live to be straightened out, 
to be ironed out, if you will. But yet God has done just that. He's done just that by sending Jesus to us as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. God has given complete authority to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, making Christ preeminent over thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created, Paul says, through him and before him. Yet Jesus not only has absolute authority, Paul also tells us that Jesus has perfect wisdom. As Paul says to the Corinthians, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Notice that. Jesus has absolute power, and he is absolute perfect in his exercise of wisdom. Therefore, Christ will bless those who are under his authority. It will cause your life to flourish in joy and in gladness. We will flourish in holiness. We will receive the blessing of the wealth of heaven. We will experience joy unending in eternal life with Jesus. Christ's authority over us as Lord, this is good news. This is a joyous truth, not some burdensome one we have to accept in order to be saved. No, this is good news that Jesus wields his authority over us, not to abuse us, but to serve us and deliver us. Jesus told us the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The wise Son of God dies for fools like us. Praise be to God. We are fools, aren't we? We have cursed the king. We have rebelled against him. We have spoken so many foolish words about him in our hearts, in our bedrooms, with our hearts bent towards evil and wickedness. That's you, that's me. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died upon the cross. And in love, he bore our punishment so that he might rescue those of us who are perishing in sin. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the king, and he's not a self-indulgent king. He's the self-sacrificing king. If you hope to grow in wisdom, if you hope to have your life marked by this sort of fragrance of wisdom we've been talking about, you must submit to the authority of God's wise king, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are gripped and foolishness this morning, if you're gripped in your sin, let me urge you to repent of your folly and to look to the wisdom of God who is Christ Jesus. Place yourself willingly, joyfully, gladly at his feet under his excellent authority so that the spirit of God can begin to do his work in you as he conforms you evermore to the pattern of holiness and godliness and wisdom marked by your Savior making you wise for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ as you receive and read and meditate upon God's word. You see, a life of wisdom is a life of godliness under the authority of Jesus. And if you want to live that sort of life, it's certainly not a popular one. That sort of life is often hidden and forgotten and ignored, but in the sight of God, so very precious. Avoid, friends, avoid the stench of foolishness. And for those of us who know that Jesus is the wisdom of God and the power of God, 
For those of us who have repented and have confessed that Jesus is Lord of our lives, may we submit to him gladly. And as we do, may our life be a fragrance to the world, not a stench. May our life be lived as an act of worship, an offering of praise, a sweet perfume that testifies to the world both the power and wisdom of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you confessing how frequently our life can derail into utter foolishness. Father, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to examine our own life, to consider the ways in which we, right now, in this moment, are acting foolishly. And Lord, help us to realize that the only way that we can grow in wisdom is if we turn from our foolishness, we turn from our sin, and Lord, that we look gladly to the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your wisdom. Father, I pray that those of us who are in Christ, we would do that day by day that our life increasingly, as your spirit works through the ordinary means of grace, of word and prayer in the church, Lord, that as we take up all those means of grace, that our life would be marked increasingly so by this sort of godly and hidden and quiet wisdom. But Father, I pray especially for those who know nothing of the wisdom of Christ. Lord, I pray today that by your spirit, you may have convicted some in this room of their foolishness, of their sin, of their lack of wisdom. And Lord, that today they might repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, yes, but also as their Lord, as their King, as their Master. Lord, I pray, Lord, that if you are convicting people so, Lord, that they would humble themselves and call out to you, Father, for salvation. Father, that you would save those who are lost that you would open their eyes to see and to savor the glory that is Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you that by your mercy and by your grace, you save fools like us. Lord, may you be glorified in any wisdom marked by our lives, knowing that it all comes by your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.